You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 2 of Another Name for Everything, casual conversations with Richard Rohr, responding to listener questions from his new book, The Universal Christ, in Season 1 of this podcast. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Bree Stoner. And I'm Paul Swanson. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst delaying the relentless dish pile broken heaters, and the shifting state of our world. This is the 11th of 12 weekly episodes. In today's episode, we dive into your questions on how does the universal Christ relate to the ways that we parent and raise our kids in today's world. Richard, among the many questions that we received about your book in season one, we were kind of blown away by how many parents wrote in basically saying help how do we do this parenting yes, thing yes. how do we how do we provide a good container for our kids without passing on the more yes, toxic things yes, that we've received yes. and so to kick us off i want to read this um, question from john from <laughs> peter Mer- no say it peter Meritzburg. peter Meritzburg, <laughs> south africa <laughs> sorry john i'm a parent of four precious young people knowing the need for order in their earliest stages of life, yet being aware of the limitations of that and their coming need to include and transcend the disorder that will come. How do I parent them? Put another way, I find it hard to give them order-based boundaries knowing that such boundaries are artificial. I feel like a fraud giving them a fake sense of order when I know that life is more complex and I want to prepare them well for that. For example, I can no longer say with integrity that there is one faith path that is quote unquote right. Yet in their order stage of life, they might need that kind of solidity as artificial as I know, I now know it to be. How do I give them the order they need while knowing that it will quite soon let them down? So humbly asked and and so filled with understanding. yeah, this parenting issue is uh, is nonstop because we're all influenced by our own culture, our, the way we were parented, of course. And now with what we're saying, it does call for an adjustment. How do you give order without giving toxic order? How do you... Maybe the thing is to say it's good. This is a good way to do it. Mm. You know, remember, it's the enthusiasm in your voice that your children are hearing. It's your energy in their voice. And if the voice is threatening or demanding or punitive or moral, this is the only way to do it. Um, We have the true religion. Uh, That might be as good an answer as anything. It's the energy with which you say it. Um, but avoid the word only, which we were mostly trained to use. Uh, That just sets them up for dualistic thinking. But at the same time, to communicate through the enthusiasm in your voice and other things, that what Jesus, in this case, has taught our family. You know, you can even speak of it in terms of our family, because that's the world circle 
they understand and they have to start with why Jesus is so good in, in our family. Not that you want to say that too much either, but, but you got to start there. You got to start there. It's okay. So how do you give boundaries while allowing those boundaries to be permeable somehow, to be open-ended boundaries? You'll find the vocabulary. But the way John here is asking the question, my suspicion is he's going to do it perfectly already. Mm. Uh, and the fact that he's asking the question. That is my answer as you've learned now to so many questions. The way people ask it tells me if they're already on the road to getting the yeah. answer. It really does. That's not, I'm not opting out or copping out by saying that. It's a bit of the, the Santa Claus quandary. You know, so many parents were like, well, do we tell, do we, do we tell our kids that Santa Claus is real or don't we? You know, it's so silly, right? And, and I'm, I'm not um, recommending that everybody take this path, but the way that uh, my co-parent, my ex-husband and I figured a way through that was to say, well, let's just tell them the myth that it was based on. Let's talk about the real Saint Nick and what he stood for and how a myth was created out of that. But I think it's really difficult for us as parents to locate, especially when it comes to this order box, what do we want to include in that order box and what do we not want to include in that order box? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's very difficult, especially uh, in context where the kids are hearing um, other Christian stories that are more maybe with the atonement spin or the you know the Old Testament stories or the, the Hebrew Bible stories that leave you feeling like, did, did I really want my kids to <laughs> right. receive that? Uh, or even well-meaning people in your community who say things like, you know, Jesus, Jesus wants you to be nice. Mm -hmm. Jesus won't like you if you're not nice. And then you just get that sting of like, Ugh. well, that's not the gospel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it gets messy. Yes. It can get messy really quick. Because you do want your children to be successful in social settings and have friends and so you do want to tell them to be nice but not too quickly to tie it up with god's favor toward them right yeah. right as a as a follow-up to that question which is a bit more nuanced and um it kind of toward how do we create that order box maybe without religion rosemary from san juan capistrano california says you mentioned the three boxes order disorder and reorder you say that it is a good thing to have the order box, but what if you never had the order box? I had an order box, but I didn't raise my kids with an order box, and now I have grand grandchildren to think about. How do you give order without a religious practice? And I think what's interesting about that question is that I think so many millennials are um, feeling this allergy toward trying to be in church, and yet we're having kids, and so we're... We're wanting to give them a sense of order, but how do you do that without being a part of a church, per se? Is that the heart of the question? Can you only do it with the church? or? A... It sounds like she's saying, how do you give order without mm. a religious practice or perhaps a religious community? You know, in our history, religion and morality have become one and the same thing. Mm. They're actually not. But... Um, it comes down in normal practice to how do I tell them this is good, this is bad. 
this is good order, this is Usually we resort to religious language. Uh, Jesus told us or God told us, and it simplifies the process of teaching. What do you do when that isn't there? I have to admit it's probably, now remember in all of this, I've never been a parent, so who am I to talk? But uh, in all of this, it's more difficult finding the right language when you can't rely upon God language. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Uh, I guess you just say things like, this is good. <laughs> and then uh, the smarter kids will ask, well, what makes it, why is it good? Or who said it's good? Or do I have to do the good thing all the time? Mm -hmm. So you can certainly see in this context why God language emerged. Uh, we probably misused it a lot, but at least to try to directly speak to her question, uh, I think you can give order without a religious practice. Now, we're probably using the word religious to mean belonging to an organized church. Mm -hmm. I don't think religion really means that either. Uh, uh, what I would say, you see it in that little book, Just This, is a sense of wonder, a sense of awe. That, for me, is foundational religion. And I've seen a lot of people jump over wonder and awe and just say, God says. Yes. Or as we Catholics were told, it's a mortal sin if you don't. Uh, and we weren't raised to look for wonder and awe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to attune the child to wonder and awe uh, and respect toward wonder, uh, that's the religious instinct that you want to concentrate on yeah. rather than we belong to this church. Mm -hmm. What does that really teach you? It doesn't. It gives boundaries, and she's obviously heard me say boundaries are good because if you don't learn them, when the ego is little smarter and more rebellious, it's much harder then to install ego boundaries. <laughs> Whereas if your little boy knows that your, his sister has rights and, and mommy and daddy have rights, that's actually doing them a favor that, you know, other people begin where you end mm -hmm. and there are other people in the world. Yeah. And they have feelings and they have need for quiet or whatever else it might be. Mm -hmm. That's not being punitive. That's teaching them how to live in society right. and to know they're a part of an organism and not an independent organ. And they can mm. just feel what they want, say what they want, when they want. That creates narcissists. And we have too much of that, I'm afraid. Mm. It's funny, that reminds me of just how my daughter, who's four, you know, in, especially in the times that we live in, one of the things that we're trying to teach her is boundaries yeah. and trying to do that in a healthy way. And her mantra is, I'm in charge of my body, which is awesome for a four-year-old little girl to be able to say that. And then there's also the other side of the extreme where it's like, Hey, sweetie, can you have your eat your broccoli? No, I'm in charge of my body. <laughs> no kidding. Where it's taking these oh, beautiful values, God. but like, like you said, trying to learn how does that fit in, uh, and and I'm not trying. I'm 
I don't know yeah. if I'm saying it quite right, but you know what I'm saying. Where how yeah. do we how do we instill these values in such a way that uh, their true intent lands and it doesn't become um, only a search for say just wonder uh, without any kind of formal without discipline? Any, yeah. yeah, I yeah I really appreciate what you're saying, Richard. That um, isn't it. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who said his definition of faith is to live with awe and wonder. Yeah. Mm. And so I think as parents, that can be something we can we can move toward, strive toward, and have intention over. Mm-hmm. Like we want to develop awe and wonder in our kids. And it reminds me of that um, that story. I'm blinking on the name of the author on Teilhard in the Park. You know, it's this little girl who... Oh, yeah. Do you remember her name? I don't. We'll we'll include it. Book? We'll find it and we'll put it in our oh, in our okay. resources for okay. this episode. But she talks about running into Tayard in New York City in Central Park and oh. this beautiful example of how he they developed a relationship where they would just go on walks through Central Park. It's a made up story. No, it's true story. It's true. Yes. And so he Oh my god. He would he, and as they would walk, oh. he would just say, "Oh, look, look at this tiny snail. Look at the spiral. Isn't this the way of everything? Oh, look, look at the spider web. Isn't it magnificent? And I took, I've I've taken a lot of cues from that story and from Teilhard in in terms of just wanting to orient my kids to nature. Like, look, isn't this amazing? And isn't this marvelous? Isn't this beautiful? And then uh, I guess as a continuation of your question, Paul, one of the things that's really worked for me with my kids is talking about ecosystems. In other words, that's the way that I've been able to get them to understand limits. It's like, hey, everything we do impacts each other. And in the ecosystem, if you make that choice, here's (laughs) here's how it impacts the ecosystem. And ironically, that use of a scientific term that web-like connection to each other mm. of like our family has an ecosystem. Mm. This household has an ecosystem. I can throw it off when I'm impatient. You can throw it off when you're not willing to to you know be kind to your brother. That seems to connect. So science, mm. I think, could potentially be a really helpful tool for us when we try to create order, or at least the love of our, of the natural world. Yeah. That's one of the things that I do with my daughter every night. Uh, one of those rhythm things of we go look at the moon. And obviously, let's go tell the moon our troubles. Um, uh, so we go look at the moon, and then we can see where it is at in its own process. Yeah. And so it's, she's understanding the natural world through this bonding time between us when we just either howl at the moon or talk to the moon or wow. share the troubles of the day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I feel like it's very connected to what you're saying. Where like, how yeah. do we how do we get back into rhythm and uh, in the, in the cosmos so that that actually helps reflect back these teachings in a more integrated way? Yeah. And maybe to use images from the natural world to explain things that are otherwise hard to understand as a child. I can't imagine, you know, I mean, I I don't remember having a clear sense of my actions have influence on other people. But I I told my kids this story once when I was leaving, um, probably to come here uh, years ago when I was in the living school. I said, okay, mama, mama's gonna go away for a week. I'm gonna go to the living school. I'm gonna be in New Mexico. But my heart has a web a little um, uh, spider web attached to it, and it's connected to oh, your heart. Pretty. And it doesn't matter oh, how far away we are, yes. that spider mm. web is still intact. Oh, so you can tug on kids it. Kids have to remember that. <laughs> you can, you can yes. send me love and kisses, and mama's oh, always sending you love and kisses. <laughs> and then what's helpful about that is then when we're back together, you know, we have language to say, hey, 
you really tugged on my spider web when you said that, or, Hey, that really, that kind of hurt my spider web. You know, it's like trying to get at this sense of connectivity, it's but beautiful. trying to do it in creative ways. I mean, I'm sure our kids are just going to have a whole new layer of, of kinds of therapy that they're going to do. They'll be like, my mom kept talking about this spider web. And like, I just have nightmares of being stuck in a web. Like, what does it mean? All I'd say too, too, uh, not instead mm -hmm. of, don't be afraid to still talk about Jesus oh, if you course. are a Christian. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to build the relationship between Jesus and universal presence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because remember, the particular is the doorway to the universal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Well said. No, one of the favorite songs of our household is Jesus Loves Me. And we, we mix up some of the, because who tells you so? Sometimes it's the family, mm -hmm. sometimes it's the Bible, sometimes, oh. you know, just as a way that, oh, um, lovely but, that, but it's fun to see how that song, which meant to me, a lot to me as a kid, when you were. and to see that be passed on in my daughter's eyes as she lights up when we sing it. Um, mm -hmm. So just a, an affirmation of that, yeah, Jesus is still very much, uh, but giving other answers than the Bible. That's yeah. very clever. Yeah. Without leaving it behind either. Uh -huh. for sure. Yeah. This is an interesting question we got from John from Oceanside. He asks, I'm wondering why Joseph is almost nowhere to be found after the nativity scene. Are we to assume he was not the crucifixion? Has he passed? Is that the actual father who had forsaken Jesus? With Mary being so prominently depicted throughout imagery and statues, what does this say about the masculine wound? Or even the combined role of parents, partnership, mother, and father in spiritual upbringing? He's naming what I was trying to name in my years of men's work and what we call the father wound. That, uh, uh, not speaking of Joseph in the moment, but just in history in general, the passing on of the life energy, the nurturing energy, was assumed in most cultures to come to the mother alone. <laughs> now in the Bible text, uh, we were anxious, gotta blame us Catholics for this, to make Mary ever a virgin. Mm. And so we whisked Joseph out stage left, but even the, even the gospel text seemed to. Mm. Now we came up with the story, nowhere to be proven, that uh, Joseph did die a young death. We have no evidence for that, but the fact we never hear of him, he certainly would have been there at the crucifixion, we would like to think. Uh, but we were so eager theologically to say God was his father. That made him the son of God. Okay, good symmetry, good imagery. Mary, the human mother, God, the divine father. But uh, what got lost is this. You know, I don't know if this man is Catholic. Uh, I've been at San Luis Rey at your mission, our Franciscan mission there in Oceanside. And I'll bet if you'd go there, I haven't been there for some years, but you'd find three images, maybe on the side walls, but often toward the front. Certainly Joseph holding a baby. Mary's usually on one side, Joseph on the other. But the other two that we added to the Pantheon uh, were very interestingly men holding babies. Uh, they're not biblical figures, but the fact, remember that whole thing we, 
we create the images we need for the soul to see so it can know itself. Uh, that's from Carl Jung. <clears throat> the two figures being one of our Franciscans, St. Anthony. And there's no historical proof that St. Anthony, maybe the child Jesus did appear in his arms, that's fine. Uh, but he's almost always pictured that way. And he's in most historic Catholic churches. Where did that come from? Why was that mythology so needed, so admired? Uh, Anthony holding the baby Jesus. I think a lot of people needed to see a man holding a baby. <laughs> then the other one, uh, which was in more pre-Vatican II, but in Europe, uh, especially the Germanic countries, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, in almost, I want to say almost all little towns, I certainly can't say it always is, on the outside of the church, there's a huge painting of Christopher holding a little baby. Well, he's sitting on his shoulder, you know. And um, the, the myth of that went back to when you went out to the fields in the morning, if you could see Christopher, <laughs> you would not die that day. I know those are just legends and stories, but that's why he's painted so huge. And I asked myself, why is Christopher everywhere? Now, at Vatican II, they concluded that he wasn't even a real historical figure. And uh, so many people were so disappointed because he was the patron of travelers, you know. St. Christopher, pray for us on this journey. But why did we create that legend? Uh, a man, again, holding a little baby on, on his shoulder. I think to answer the question that John here is asking, uh, is it possible for men to be nurturing, to be supportive, to be warm? Are men not to be involved in the upbringing of children? And you're a marvelous example of that. But in much of the world, that is still an anomaly. The quote I use in one of my books uh, I learned in Japan, and they said the Japanese hate three things. They hate earthquakes, they hate fires, and they hate fathers. And if you've traveled in Asia at all, the authoritarian father is, is what he's supposed to be. He's not supposed to touch his kids. He's not supposed to have a warm personal relationship with him. It's done untold damage in the whole culture. Uh, little boys who have no uh, nurturing skills integrated with the masculine, then they don't know how to do it themselves. So it just continues. And the trouble is not just with their sons, but with their daughters too. They don't know how to be nurturing. So forgive me if this is a long answer, but I spent years with this problem, this issue, and it really inaugurated our men's work. Mm. Whereas most, most men's groups started uh, by men coming together to discuss their relationship or lack of relationship with their own father. And many of the stories just made you want to sob, uh, how real it has been. So, um, yeah, but we probably were already dealing with this by pulling Joseph out of the picture. We don't need Joseph. We just need Mother Mary. 
It's an illustration of um, some of what we've talked about, about the deep wounds of patriarchy that go mm-hmm. throughout and on all sides. That's right. Because, you, you know, it's not just damaging to women and little girls. It's damaging to men and little boys. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you see the impact of that even in gender norms around parenting, mm-hmm. which is, I think, something that's very... Um, alive in our cultural conversation right now because you do see so many more dads now stepping in and being like no i'll be the stay-at-home dad Mm -hmm. you go you go i want to empower you to pursue this career like let's do this together you don't have to carry the burden of the first early three years of our child's life by yourself uh, I mean, I know we have a long ways to go still in that, but, but we're moving. We're moving. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in this regard, our culture is ahead of most. Mm. You see it here uh, in Western Europe too, but here in Offla. What are these? Do you have one of these where you carry the baby on your chest? Oh, yeah. What's that called? Oh, there's so many different varieties. I'm oh. trying to think of mm-hmm. the one that we have. We have like two or three because three, they're. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, having the baby right against your heart, right against your heart, yeah. And, and those are just those are. I mean, it's the magic of having a baby and being able to go for a walk and, mm. and just hold that precious oh, being be so wonderful. close, yeah. And then um, the it's an interesting thing we talk about the gender norms within that. As a father, if I'm bringing my kids to get groceries. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, you are doing such an amazing job. For real. <laughs> my wife never gets that when no, she's the kid. No, neither. It's yeah, like, no. She's supposed to. It's yeah. like assumed, like just, uh-huh. no, you know, nothing. But yeah. And then you get praise. I get praise and I feel good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, everyone thinks I'm so great. And she's just like rolls her eyes, <laughs> as she should. I've been yes. doing it eight hours today. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, one other little piece on that that I, that I think has merit is that I'm told, maybe you've read other things similar, that for the first however many weeks, months, the child doesn't know it's separate from the mother. It knows the smell of her body, the feel of her body, the taste of that milk, the mm-hmm. I'm one with her. Mm-hmm. This is unitive consciousness in its early stages. Then the, the second one to enter the scene is the who's this other person in the house? <laughs> they don't smell quite as good. <laughs> They're scratchy, yeah. scratchy they don't faces. Smell the same as Mama, but they seem to be nice to me. They seem to be okay. So when the father chooses them, this is the first experience of election, of free love, mother's love. I assume I rely upon. I mean. People who have a mother wound are really wounded. I mean, father wounds are terrible too. But when you can't assume your mother's love is reliable, it's foundational to the psyche. But that someone else freely delights when you enter the living room and smiles from ear to ear, that's election. And that's the power. I've even gone so far as to wonder, is that the reason we called God Father? Mm-hmm. He's the one who chooses to love us. He doesn't have to, as it were, as it were. Now, I don't know if the metaphor works in all cases, but uh, for some people, that's been very helpful. Yeah. It, it brings to mind what a um, tender and sensitive time it is when oh. a couple gives birth. Oh, because... Yeah. Everything is new. Everything is overwhelming. 
And I think um, it also speaks to our desperate need for community. I think many couples, when they have children or um, when women maybe give birth alone even, there's there's a desperate need for community to come around and to normalize some of those phases. I know that there's a lot in conversation right now around women in postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and just how real it is and how hard it is. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it just is a one more, as if we needed more, one more reminder of how desperately we need community Community. and how much we are such an isolated culture in the United States that we think we have to do it all on our own and how damaging that is. Yeah, and I think too, I'm so glad you brought up postpartum. Um, And I think one thing that also has kind of gotten under the radar too is men who have been told like once they have a a child, they're just going to love it immediately. Yeah. And for some men, it doesn't doesn't happen for weeks really? or months. Yeah. One, I even talked to one guy. He said it took him two years before he really fell in love with his child. Bond, really? I've never heard that before. And it's just like this. Yeah. It just and that that wound that gets carried with that as well. And I'm shame. Or yeah. Like a sense of guilt around it. I, I'm yeah. not the dad I should be. Right. Um, and so just being able to have these conversations when the, to remove some of that isolation and try to normalize what does it mean to be a parent yes. in today's world. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is a little bit of um, like Paul's question says that where he says the combined role of parents, partnership, mother and father in spiritual upbringing, which is to say we're, we're not great in our culture at recognizing that parenting is a communal thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the whole phrase like it takes a, it village. Takes a village. It's a it real does. thing. <laughs> it actually does yes, take yes. a village. I remember having a conversation once with a, uh, a dear friend of mine who um, was feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety as her young son started. It must have been preschool. And I had a conversation with her where I said, okay, you know, the grass, the sun, the stars, the trees, if you can start to imagine that we're being held by a great community, then you can start to imagine your young son as being held by a great community as well. He's not unseen, he's not alone, you know, but we do think of ourselves so separately we do. that then as parents, when you see your kid going off, you're like, ah, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to being able to relax into a trust mm. that we're, you know, that there's a great cloud of witnesses uh, that are there. And then there's a very real physical cloud of witnesses and parents, teachers, friends. We're an exception to history that, that we have replaced the extended family yes. with the nuclear family. Yes. And then jobs, we go off and take this new job in Ohio where aunts and uncles aren't there, grandma isn't there. This is unnatural. Yeah. We've to- taken the village apart. Yeah. You know, you know. And sometimes we'll also think, we'll get trapped in that isolated mindset. Like I think about whenever I bring my kids to the CAC, it's almost like, you know, we're giving away free money or something. Just people come out of the woodworks just to like <laughs> hold hold my son or to play with my daughter. Yeah, Give and there's something baby. about that, right, where I think you can get so insulated where you think this is all up to me to just raise these kids. Mm. Then you need those reminders of community who are just going to show up with that free grace of love and support. Yeah. So from community support to resources questions, Catherine from Thomasville, Georgia says, I have a four-year-old son who I can already tell has a tremendous capacity for spiritual thinking. However, most of the books and other Christian materials for Christian 
or for children, sorry, are not in line with the universal Christ that you teach and that my husband and I know in the world. I want to raise him in the Christian tradition. However, I find that most of the mainstream Christian teachings for children, I fear, will do more harm than good in helping him see the Christ in himself and in the world around him. How can we talk about these things with my son in an age-appropriate way? I've really been struggling with this, so I appreciate any feedback or advice. Well, I'm going to go back to my both-and way of thinking. Uh, it's going to come from your energy by which they see you, how they see you, respecting other things and people. So I still encourage you to tell Jesus stories because of my book. The sacramental principle is, I'm saying it twice this morning, but allow me to, that you must start with the particular to go to the universal. And our danger now is to jump into the universal thinking it will be understood. Uh, it doesn't give the heart space the devotion it needs the opening it needs. So don't throw out all Christian stories. Uh, most of them can be used, I would think. And I'm sure there's some books better than others, but you have to experience awe, uh, respect, reverence, before one image, Jesus, isn't Jesus good to the little children? Let's be about as traditional as we could be, you know? And then say, and now we, who are an extension of Jesus, uh, are showing that same respect for all God's children. Uh, uh, so it's both and. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Because I've seen, and coming from the Catholic side now, the, the usually rather good theology we got after the mid-1960s but it did not engage the heart of most young Catholics in the 70s and 80s. Oh yeah, God loves everybody. <laughs> they hadn't struggled with the whole thing of being loved or how wonderful it is to be loved unconditionally. You have to want that. You have to make space for that. You have to struggle with that a bit. And I remember when I gave teen retreats, to young Vatican II Catholics in the 1970s. They all loved me, of course, because I was telling them God loved them unconditionally, even when they had premarital sex, which they just loved, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was what Luther would call cheap grace. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the, the diving into the ocean of universality before you struggle with the truth of it, possibly being true in particularity, uh, doesn't make for a good pedagogical method. And that's why we came up with this notion of sacramentalism. And that's it, philosophically speaking, that you need the concrete to come to the universal. You need to love your partners in, in one concrete love before you even know what love feels like and what feels like when it's taken away. And so um, 
I'm probably saying that too much, but I think it is one danger of people reading this new book. They're so excited about the universal Christ. And if they stay with the book, I think I even get stronger on it in the later part of the book. Jesus is the personal. Christ is the universal. When you have both working together, Mm -hmm. you have good religion. Mm -hmm. It's so. it's so helpful, Richard, it is. because well, thank you. it gives us a frame around which to say, okay, so part of my role as a parent in building this container can really just be oriented around the personal Jesus and the stories around Jesus and how to help him come to life in a way for for children and for them to see it um, uh, and connect to it personally. Yeah. And I think there's um, a couple of people wrote in to say, Uh, you know, hey, I heard you guys talking about parenting and how hard it is. Do you know that there's a good curriculum called the Good Shepherd? You know, so there's all kinds of things. That's been around for 20, 30 years. Yeah, there's all kinds of uh, initiatives, I think, around trying to build a healthy first container and and listen, I know as a, as a mom, uh, sometimes you cringe at some of the language that comes with that. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that's part of our role in relaxing and allowing Mm them to to navigate that and for the complexity to be there yeah i mean i think it's that tension of we've we've done our work in that way where we've gone through some of that order disorder and now we're trying to trying Mm -hmm. to give do more of the reordering work that it's hard to see like oh my kids got to go through this path too yeah and as you you're you're trying to like get the jump over the disorder (laughs) just to Mm -hmm. land in the reorder but it's not fair to their own development and growth yeah i mean i I love listening to my kids talk about God and like, I'll sometimes hear them explain things to each other where like one of them will say like, God is kind of like this. And the other one's like, not really. God is kind of like that. And uh, yeah, I, I do think it's important for that. I just really appreciate the ways you're driving home. How important the devotional center, Mm -hmm. the devotion. Without devotion, things don't last. Mm. They really, they're flash in the pan. Yeah. You know, this just struck me now, and forgive me if I'm totally wrong, but what struck me is maybe the ideal scenario would be a good Catholic post-Vatican II children's book taught by an evangelical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I like that. That's a good combo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're a living example of it. Um, Yeah. It isn't so syrupy and sweet and individualistic. But you would bring the devotion yeah. to to our supposedly good theology. Collective. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Continuing with this thread, uh, we have a question here from Rebecca from Abbotsford, British Columbia. My question is about the resurrection. In trying to help children understand the communal, inclusive, transformational meaning of the resurrection, rather than the individual transactional understanding that I was raised God, with. God, she got it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have suggestions on how to translate this for their understanding? How can I begin sharing this with them? Hmm. Uh, yeah, we're at high-level consciousness. There's no doubt about it. The, the notion of resurrection, which is the icon for reorder (laughs) Uh, is not easily communicated to a child Uh, we were the best we did in our baltimore catechism was where is god god is everywhere 
why can't we see God? God is spirit. So we were saying the same things. Uh, but what she might be really longing for is this communal and inclusive mm -hmm. character of the resurrected Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I probably didn't develop enough in the book, and I deeply believe to be true, is that light from the first chapter of Genesis is the metaphor for the Christ. This presence that allows you to see everything else. So you've heard me say it, you don't see light, but it is through light that you see everything else. That's actually in the prologue to John's Gospel. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I found it, where was it? In 14th chapter of John, or was it 16th? Last week, you know, I am the light by which you see, by which you see. So it's good science, it's good um, conceptualization of this omnipresence of God. Uh, but light isn't something you can grab or grasp. So again, we come to the Christ through Jesus. Jesus we can see and touch and hear. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only way. I know that's going to upset some people. Uh, but uh, I've just met too many Buddhists and Hindus and Jews who have come to the light by different metaphors, by different stories, by different uh, paths, and often honor the, the light in all things better than we do. And uh, so I'm not denying the way I've been saying it, I hope I say it in the book, is Jesus for me and Christ for me are both like shortcut icons on your computer. You can get there through three clicks or you can get there through one click. <laughs> and Jesus is a good one click. Jesus Christ is a very good two click way <laughs> to have the whole story. Uh, that doesn't say anything about joining a group. Uh, it really doesn't. Or reciting the creed on Sundays. It's about seeing. And seeing with a light that allows you to see the light in everything else. Isn't that wonderful? Huh? It's, it's so simple it's hard to teach. It really is. Well, you were saying the other day at your house... Uh, when we when we were doing the podcast at your house, you talked about how we need page, pa, the pageantry of liturgy. Sometimes yeah, yeah. it allows us to connect with it in a tactile way. These ideas, um, I love what you did with uh, the liturgy at the Universal Christ Conference. You know, even things like anointing the rock and taking mm -hmm. us through the Easter liturgy. I think there's opportunities for us with kids to look at how can we translate these big concepts into things that are more practical. And you mentioned light, um, which makes me think like the natural world can be a gateway where we can talk about, see, love is stronger than death. See, mm -hmm. you know, this is the way mm -hmm. of everything. Um, yeah. Beautiful. And for those of you listening, I, did I say it in the book about the Jacob story? I don't think it's in the book. I think it's in the liturgy. It's in the liturgy. Okay, all the better. Which is available at the book. Which bookstore. is available as a little booklet. <laughs> But we deliberately started our Universal Christ Conference with doing something that initially looks pagan, or New Age, or, and then I just tell them, open up Genesis. 
and read the story of Jacob. He uses a rock for a pillow between heaven and earth. A ladder appears with angels, angels walking between the rock and the heavens. God, that's good story, huh? And then he wakes up, says, Eureka, I found it. You were here all the time and I never knew it. And he anoints the rock and names the place House of God, Gate of Heaven. And that, if, if we had no other story in the Old <laughs> Testament after Genesis. That'd be pretty good. And, yeah. and then him wrestling with the angel later. Yeah. That is just good theology. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we pointed out, I hope, in the liturgy, you know, I know this was, this was meant to shock you, us putting a rock in the middle of the table mm-hmm. and anointing it. Mm-hmm. Because if Christ is that by which we see, Christ is also what we see in the material world. And so the anointing of something is naming it blessed. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't start with a more rudimentary physicality than the the rock underneath all of our feet right now, right Right. now. It is a good metaphor. And then follow that, I won't do it here, but to follow the rock metaphor through the scriptures, it's central again and again. Up to finally Peter being named the rock. (laughs) This is good stuff. But that's only for people like fours on the (laughs) anagram. Who love, we won't tell you which one is the four. You haven't figured it out yet. I wonder. Uh, who love symbols. They mm. just revel in such things. A lot of the rest of them think, oh, that's only a symbol. Who was it that said, never say, only a symbol? Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's sacramentalism. Never say, only a symbol. It's so powerful. And it is. <laughs> and not to embarrass you, Bree, but you wrote some things about Holy Week with kids that I, when I saw it in my inbox, uh, <laughs> it was just said- so beautiful to know that, like, you are practicing this with your kids. And I do yeah. think, you know, it comes from part of your own artistic energy and theological mind that you're able to help bring these amazing concepts to kids in very concrete practices. Yeah, I, I mean, at full full disclaimer, I think I'm as a parent who's in this with so many other parents trying to find ways to express these things, Richard, I took, I took a lot of inspiration from the Universal Christ Liturgy that we did at the Universal Christ Conference. And over the years, I've been trying to figure out this question um, from that Rebecca asked about how do I, how do I go through Holy Week with my kids? And so, um, it's been interesting to me as I wrote about it on my blog to find how many people respond with just a sense of relief that maybe relief, we could that yeah. we could feel permission to create our own liturgies or our own traditions. Um, so I do think it's yeah, it's part of what you've gifted us with is per, is this permission permission to to try to find ways to embody this with Hallelujah. our children. I hope so. Um, ways to talk about it with my kids. Uh, because of the time of year at spring, we talk a lot about uh, butterflies. So we go through the mm. the process of a chrysalis, and and then um, we have a story that we tell about, uh, you know, how a caterpillar that became a butterfly and went into the chrysalis, and everybody thought it was dead, and everybody was wondering what it was. So it's kind of putting the concept of the crucifixion and resurrection in terms of this pattern of universal change, and this pattern of universal love. Mm. Um, 
and the kids get into it. I mean, this is the thing that I'm so fascinated by. I know you're going to say it's just because I'm a four and my kids are probably picking up on it, but I think kids love that kind of pageantry and ritual. They do. I mean, when we do, and I call them our, you know, our liturgies or our Holy Week, Holy Week rituals, you know, I'll pass a rose to my son and he'll just gaze at it. He'll tear one rose petal off oh, and God. drop He's it a down. Four <laughs> <laughs> but you For know, a male to oh do my gosh, this, they're so how sweet. They have anima already. Oh uh, yeah, femininity. So I think beautiful feeling permission as parents to try to incorporate these ideas into family rituals. That's beautiful. something that you've gifted us. Uh, now with. you're giving permission. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So on, onward with uh, questions of resources uh, in teaching kids. Catherine from Richmond, Virginia says, um, she says, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the podcast episodes and I just picked up Richard's book to dig deeper. But as I'm absorbing this perspective, I'm curious as to whether there are some picture books that explore these themes. I have young books and have found that sharing picture books together is meaningful for all of us in learning new things and inspiring <coughs> our imaginations with words and images. Thank you. Do you so want to? So it's up to you two. Yes. <laughs> Richard, right. which picture books would you recommend? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know, really. Yeah, there's so many good ones now. We, we definitely live in a time where it's a lot easier for people to, to produce books, especially those who want to gather around these ideas. We have a few listed, and I put a few here on my phone. I'm just going to. Good. Um, so there's a few that my daughter really likes. One is. Where is God by Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, um, which God, you know, it, it gets more to the universal uh, mm, mm. side of, of what we're talking mm. about. And a rabbi. And a Very rabbi, good. yeah. Good. And then there's another one that gets more to the historical Jesus, which is Refugee. Have you seen that mm. one, Brie? Yes, I have. Where it's yeah. about the experience of Jesus leaving and going to Egypt. Oh, wow. As a refugee. refugee. And then there's some other ones that have to do that my daughter is really into right now is Mindful Movement, which is a Thich Nhat Hanh picture book, which oh. just shows different yeah. uh, ways of body postures and body uh, meditative practices. Yeah. Um, she's really into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other ones too, uh, Peaceful Piggy Meditation, that same vein. And then have you heard Did of Did you the, say Peaceful Piggy? Yeah, have you seen this one? <laughs> no, that's <It's>, awesome. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And and then one that I uh, was just interested or in, introduced to was the three questions, which is based on a Leo Tolstoy. Yeah, that's oh, story really? of oh. where he, this young boy is seeking the questions of when is the best time to do things? Mm-hmm. Who is the most important one? Mm-hmm. What is the right thing to do? Wow, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, yeah. and so those are, I mean those are the ones that were kind of the top of my list as we were flipping through books. Yeah, uh, how about you, Bree? Um. I was also trying, you know, you know that moment as a parent when you're trying to remember all the things that you have at home that you're not... You're 90% just, of your day. You're not staring at. Yes. Uh, a couple came to mind. One is called I Am Stardust, which is just the recognition of the our interconnectedness mm, in this cosmos. Mm. Uh, there's a book that makes me weep every time I read it, so the kids barely want to read it because I cry every time. <laughs> it's called Little Tree, and it's all about... Uh, the the inner point of resistance in all of us to want to not let go and this little tree that refuses to let go of its leaves and then through this whole course of a story finally gets to the end finally lets go of its leaves and finally grows into a beautiful strong tree Mm. which is just so you know profound about the importance of letting go and living in the flow that's lovely there's a lot of great books i picture books i feel 
uh, that are out there right now that may not be overtly spiritual, but yeah. have really good messages. Sure, like sure. you belong here is one that's just all about <laughs> welcoming your inherent value and belonging. Um, there's a, an interesting book called What Do You Do With a Problem, which tackles how we view reality and what happens when we shift our view from seeing something as a problem to seeing it as an opportunity mm. or creativity, which is really interesting. Um, but then I, I can just go old school here and say C.S. Lewis, George yep. MacDonald, yep. Tolkien, all of those great novels uh, uh, for me form a part of almost like a second canon to the scriptures <laughs> that I love and my kids love. And you know, even Harry Potter these days, it's like there are a lot of beautiful redemptive themes in there. Um, I know these aren't picture books, right? Yeah. This is like the next level, mm -hmm. but. Well, even with that, I mean, one of the practices of our family is we tend to read a, a poem before we eat. Do you? And for whatever reason, since my daughter was a baby, she's only wanted roomy poetry. That's the one that she would, wow. when she couldn't speak and she would do the sign what for more. What are going to be? <laughs> like, I, I, I think a Sufi. I'd live long enough to see. <laughs> but the introduction of some of these things, I think. Uh, I mean, Poetry. Yeah, yeah. As ways of just beginning to expand that imagination, that, mm. that spiritual and philosophical mm. imagination. Well, and I think as a last point to this, I think we have a tendency to be obsessed with where our kids are developmentally and mm, what can they get, sure, what can sure. they understand. Sure. And your example of Rumi and poetry is a great one because it's sometimes it doesn't have to be something that they can grasp intellectually or developmentally. No. Sometimes it's about what we're teaching them rhythmically mm. in terms of this is, this is valuable. Yeah. Like listen to the rhythm of these words. There's magic in this, even if you don't understand it yet. Uh, that seems really important. Hundred percent. I think. I mean, this morning before work, I was dancing with my kids, and Aww. I think that plays into it as well. It, How beautiful connection wow. to body in this whole parenting oh, uh, children relationship. What are your kids going to be like? You're creating their imaginarium. Mm. You're giving a whole world of acceptable imagery that influences the emotional life deeply, profoundly. Mm. Thank you. Oh. Oh, that's really helpful, Richard, to mm. say what we're trying to do is create a, a broad, what did you say? A broad imaginarium. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. I like that phrase. Okay, our next question here has to do with uh, kids and discipline. This comes from Clay from Texas. I think it was the very first question of the first podcast. How do we as parents raise our children in this understanding? These deep, wonderful, often metaphoric understandings are powerful, but often beyond the grasp of a child. The temptation is to revert back to the, the tradition which I grew up, which is very literal understanding in an evangelical church, heaven, hell, salvation, etc. And so much of the reason this impacts me now is how I've discovered this in my 30s. I want to give my kids a foundation of love, truth, and a picture of who God is, but also give the space for that exciting discovery. I'm also wrestling with how God is revealed in Christ on the cross, how that should direct my parenting. The culture slash tradition in which I grew up valued good behavior and discipline, and often punishment when, when those were not met. I admit, I'm so steep in that way that I can't really comprehend what it means to parent in the flow of love. Responding to God as an all-inclusive lover rather than a holy deity that we've disappointed and of whom we need to earn approval. 
I want my kids to learn love, acceptance, and inclusivity. It's also really important that they learn to listen to us. They don't know if I'm saying stop as a preference because they're running across the yard or because Mm -hmm. it's life-threatening because they're running across the parking lot. Mm. What are your thoughts on raising children and balancing that tension? This, this, this question never stops, does it? Mm-hmm. Which shows me how urgent it is uh, for parents. How do you put together freedom with law, to p- pull it back to, right. to what Paul's struggling with? That's Paul's struggle, whether you, you thought of it that way at all. And he's dealing with it in adults. Uh, you're smart enough to say, how do we start it already with children? Um, you know, there was a study of a few years, a few elections back. I'll let you guess which one it was, but they voted, uh, what kind of people voted for the warlike America presidential candidate and what, what ones voted for the more peaceful. And it truly correlated to the way they were parented. Mm. If you were parented with a punitive, uh, that all problems are solved by domination, control, law, order, top down, you preferred a certain candidate. Mm. You can fill in a whole bunch of them, or really a whole political party, Mm. which I won't name. (laughs) And if you were raised in a a family that was more... um, Talky, let me make fun of it too. Talky, talky, feely, feely, <laughs> relationality, uh, which again has its possible downsides. You voted for a different political candidate who was also conversational, dialogical, in, appealed to intelligence and not just feeling. I'll bet that's true. I'd be willing to bet. Because when I meet people who are rabidly uh, on the left or rabidly on the right, either one, uh, you can tell it's their whole worldview. It's not just their, their God view or not just their politics, but how politics and religion go together. Uh, you see the people who have a top-down domination, all problems are solved by domination from above. That, that's in their bones from their childhood, and it's just very hard to let go of it. If my parents hadn't been personally kind people, I think that's the worldview I'd have, because that was the worldview in a German farm family in Kansas, and then I, it was the only worldview. All kids were spanked, all kids were told no, all kids were taught taught about hell. So I was redeemed by going away and studying good theology and say, you know, this isn't the shape of, the, of God. Mm-hmm. This isn't the shape of the world. But uh, this is the interplay between good theology and good psychology and good anthropology. And how good theology can absolutely turn bad anthropology on its head. Probably one reason even we stick with theology because it alone has the power to do that. Not that we want to stay there, but it's, it's fundamentally true. And so here's a good man 
recognizing that this happens and wondering how to say that to his children. Your very desire to say, to dialogue, to talk, to tell stories with your children uh, lets me know you're going to maintain. You're the father. You're not abdicating your authority, which I do think a lot of boomers did. We're all just friends here, and we're, we're all going to discover who we think God is. Like there's no tradition to be drawn upon. Mm. There's no wish, wisdom that preceded us which sets them loose in 1970s American middle-class culture mm -hmm. in which to make their value choices, you see. So you think you're being free. Actually, you're limiting them. Whereas what we're talking about is the great tradition, the great lineage that has found the truth reappearing again and again and again. So hold your role as elders. Mm -hmm. I know in your 30s it's hard to think of yourself as elder, but you are. Uh, and that's what uh, Ken Wilber calls actualization hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Don't abdicate that and think it's your job to be your best friend uh, to your children. Although I want you to be your best friend. But no, you are a father, you are a mother. Don't let go of that beautiful actualization of power for their good, not for their domination, right? but for their, in fact, evolution. Yeah. yeah. That is so well said, Richard. Yeah. Wow. And that, I feel like that's, that, um, places uh, a sense of responsibility in our participation in that flow and in that relationship, because I do think we want to abdicate that uh, oftentimes into this, you know. Most of the boomer generation yeah. did. Well, and the millennials too, because it's sort of this allergy, you know, the allergy to authority or the allergy yes. to boundaries yes. is so strong. I'm glad we're saying this. Yeah. Because yeah. it isn't popular wisdom. Right. Yeah. It's created an idealization of youth culture. Uh, I mean, as if every generation could start at zero. Mm -hmm. And this is where we, we found there's a good meaning to tradition. Yeah. If the word lineage is more helpful, use that. Yeah, mm. yeah and I just want to say with Clay that I'm right there with you of this kind of trying to hold both. Yeah, ditto. And my own experience of last night where I I felt the more of the domineering side where we pretty and I've been talking about barking at our kids Ugh. and how like I had to come back and, and then also release that domination side and say, I'm sorry, honey. Like I was acting out of a way that that wasn't about you. It was about me in that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that also helps kind of to ask for forgiveness when we do overstep in, a, in one way do. or the other yeah. or to mm -hmm. th there's no uh auto response that's going to just be perfect, perfect. every single yeah. time yeah. and so yeah. i think forgiving ourselves when we don't live up to who we hope to be and knowing that we're figuring it out yeah. i mean I, I find that just underneath the surface of all of these questions and so many more that we didn't have time to to read today is that that overwhelming experience of a parent of like I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> and I'm so scared that I'm screwing up my kids and I'm so aware of my own imperfections and I'm, I'm so aware of, of my own impatience or my limitations. And I do think that so much of this experience of parents is, is this reconciling ourselves with our being human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have this sure. line, the only perfection available to us is our honest mm -hmm. acceptance of our imperfection, our imperfection right, Richard? Yeah. And that's like, 
if that shouldn't just be the mantra of every parent, I don't know what it would be. All right. Well, just to close out on our last question, Katie from Georgia, she asks a question about uh, parenting with a partner on a different page. She says, what does it look like for those of us in our 20s and 30s who are raising small kids and living in small towns and trying to navigate our own reconstruction, our own reorder, while our kids and most of the culture around us is in construction mode? She says, for example, I'm in my mid-30s, I'm married to a beautiful, loving man, but a man who couldn't even tune into the podcast with me because the episode I happened to click on was when Richard made a commentary on sports. Uh-oh. Oh, God. <laughs> she says, you should have given a sacred cow alert at the beginning because I lost the hubs on that one. We have a three- and five-year-old who frequently stay with their grandparents who are devout, dutiful Baptists. And our kids attend a Methodist church for pre-K programs. I love that they are gifted with the presence of their loving grandparents and loving pre-K teachers, but I'm also torn inside that they're being fed all the same things that I have spent years on learning. I trust they too will wake up on their own, but I want to hear you all discuss how to be me and others like me and not be discouraged. Mm. And I think we've really been talking about this this whole episode, but Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could, just to kind of nuance her question, speak to... How do we allow our own reorder to be happening in the midst of recognizing that our kids or maybe the communities we're in are still very much in the order side? How does it how do we include and transcend that and make yes. it okay without doing damage to either our process or theirs? You feel like you're being dishonest or playing a game. Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. This is probably the deep level meaning of multitasking (laughs) really uh, how do you uh, i really know the the story has much more significance than this and yet i've got to tell it in an age-appropriate way to still well let's go back to wonder and awe Mm. you're doing a three four five six year old no favor by introducing them to critical thinking. That's, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, once you introduce critical thinking, wonder and awe is gone. Now, it's quite appropriate for a teenager when you can say, isn't this wondrous that the atom can form in this way and so forth, but, the, but their mind is capable of critical thinking. The little ones want to be in awe. That's, that's their fascination with magic. With Harry Potter, you know, it's just, I love a world of magic, Mm -hmm. of wonder. Uh, Magic is the secular form of religious awe. Um, So maybe maybe just offering you the word of religious multitasking (laughs) will give you permission. That's what you're doing, Mm -hmm. and that's what you have to do. Mm -hmm. You have to keep growing, and the very ability uh, that you've developed to grow is going to allow you to talk in an age-appropriate way to that child. Um, I really think some of the nuns who, who taught me back in the 50s were doing that. Uh, the way they taught us, I don't think they believed all that themselves. Do you understand? Yeah. But their love for us, uh, they knew their job was to give us a container. That word container has stuck and keeps recurring in most of my later books. 
because I've found so many people find it helpful mm -hmm. that you need a container or you have to have an ego to let go of an ego. Isn't that a paradox? You have to have a structure to move outside of the structure. Yeah. Talk about counterintuitive thinking. People who have no structure are forever looking for it the rest of their lives and invariably creating artificial structures, yeah. you know, of, oh, I don't know what it is. My drinking group is my structure. Or workaholics. My bridge. Being well, a workaholic, like being obsessed we, yes, with work. Yeah, make or, it something good. That's yeah, right. It's yeah. my work or my business. Mm -hmm. Uh, or my sports team, forgive me. <laughs> Sacred cow alert. <laughs> it's only one, but we're just trying to say, we can make an idol out of anything. And I'd be the first to say, people like me have done it with religion. Mm -hmm. I admit that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, anything that becomes your only lens is a narrowing lens, therefore, and an idol. So... As we um, wrap up this episode, just wanting to offer a closing disclaimer, <laughs> just for all of you parents who are trying to figure this out, we're in it with you. We don't, yes. we don't know. We're making mistakes alongside of you and trusting in the grace that somehow, somehow something is going to come through this for our kids. Um, so I'm, I just want to offer our gratitude for all your questions and just admission that we are in the cloud of parenting unknowing <laughs> with you. <laughs> And uh, just to close, Richard, we've heard you talk a lot about how much your mother's gaze impacted you and was such a gift to you. Uh, yeah. Is there something you can say about uh, a gift that your father gave you that was critical oh, yeah. to who you are now? You know, well, it probably affirms what I was telling you. Uh, of course, my daddy was a seven, so he was positive by nature. His radical acceptance of us outdid my mother's love in a lot of ways. My mother was a taskmaster. Now, I was her favorite, so I got this experience of being a beloved too much. Uh, I always say I went off to the seminary at 14 to get away from too much mother love, you know. Uh, as a, now, I could only recognize that 20 years later mm -hmm. because I was enjoying it. But this is why most boys around 14 do want to get away from their mothers. It's just, I can't, I'm so suffocated inside of her maternal nurturing power. I, I don't know, I'm codependent, to use our common term. Daddy's love was never a codependency. Uh, we'd just be playing, we'd look up, and we'd see him grinning at us, you know. <laughs> but it was never, I needed to pull you into my arms and make you mine. It was always, my dad's love was much freer. Uh, much more able to validate from a distance. Uh, you know, was it Eric Fromm? Now I'm preaching again, but he said, the healthiest people between their two parents have a combination of conditional love and unconditional love. And I think my, my siblings and I have gotten together and talked about it. We'd all say we got conditional love from our mother, nevertheless love, we got unconditional love from our father. Uh, and it, it created, I think, in all four of us, a, a basically healthy ego structure. All four of us sort of know who we are, know who we're not, and we're not begging to be noticed. Uh, uh, 
We think that's true because we got the gaze. And if you don't get the gaze, you're looking for it for the rest of your life. A lot of these people who have to be on stage. <laughs> it's wonderful, I guess, to be on stage, but don't need it too much. You're looking, believe it or not, for the gaze of God, for something that adores you, <laughs> that calls you beloved. And uh, when you already know you're a beloved, you don't need it. You can do it, but you don't need it. So yeah, I got it from both parents, but in different ways. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.